1: So we're sitting here in a room full of ninety-eight people, except I'm the only one in my room. But I see ninety-eight people out there in the dark.
2: Yeah. Whoa. Okay. So do we need somebody to hold up a sign to say like applause? Well, but we, we, we can't hear them, so they could
3: all like. Damn. We could give them an applause. Uh, I'll, although we, we can could,
2: edit it in after. We, yeah, break. we can
1: tell Jen when to I go like
3: this. Riotous <laughs> Applause.
1: Cheer at home. Yay!
4: <laughs> okay, but, but we your heart.
2: that all ninety-eight people are going to laugh at all our jokes, and we're going to have—we're just that funny. Unlike Mike Pompeo,
3: man, yes. that was a terrible Which, joke. of Pompeo, yeah,
2: that was like joke, not joke. Yeah. Sorry, not sorry. That was some BS right there. Was that all our B-roll, by the way?
1: I think that was our B-roll. All right. Okay, get ready, everybody I'm watching the sausage get made. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the peaceful-ish transfer of power edition. I'm Shane Harris, making the applause sign to our live audience. Oh my goodness, we are here in the Virtual Jungle Studios. There's like 98 Virtual Jungle Studios out there, you guys.
2: It's kind of cool
1: it's, it's a very cool
2: rational security universe
1: it's very good is this our second live show of the pandemic I've it is we time. did one
3: on yeah. zoom we did
1: oh we did yeah this is much fancier
3: Yes, Crowdcast is. We is, are fancy. Crowdcast is a cool platform, and you'll see how cool it is when we bring members of the audience in mm. to uh, to ask their questions. We'll be able to see their bright,
1: shining faces. Rational Security brought to you, but not sponsored by Crowdcast.
3: Yeah, <laughs> literally brought to you by
1: Crowdcast. Who by is the way, not
3: Crowdcast you know, people, we love, for us. We, we love you. We love you if you want to. Uh, advertised on rational security <laughs>
1: uh you can i think i think this is proving the theory why buy the cow when you can home for free <laughs> we've just done a we're never
3: doing it again for you ever C- crowdcast yeah, this is John just a crowdcast. taste you
1: yeah suck crowdcast you've been hacked by russia unlike <laughs> the election i'm here <laughs> with my good friends tomorrow and what is ben what is and student susan hennessy hi everybody It's nice to see you. It's nice to see you. Our audience doesn't necessarily notice. We don't see each other usually anymore when we do this. Yeah. Maybe we'll just do, maybe we'll do this more often so we can actually see each other. It makes not typing little text messages to each other. uh, uh, It makes it easier than that. Uh, So we can roll our eyes
5: at one another in person. Yeah, exactly. Like we used to.
1: Remember Mm -hmm. that? Remember Mm -hmm. visible displays (laughs) of contempt? Those were fun. Um, I feel like we have to take stock just for a second, by the way. This is the first podcast we have done when there officially is a president-elect, Joe Biden. Uh, when we did the podcast last week, we were still counting votes. Uh, we weren't. Hey,
2: Shane, right. we're still counting votes.
1: That's true. And every vote will Mike be Mike Pompeo,
2: Pompeo even said so. Yeah. Every vote is sacred.
1: <laughs> oh, man. We could riff on that illusion for a little while.
5: Oh, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I didn't even know I'd voted. On the podcast
5: this week...
1: Stamp Tammy got that one. Tam was a deep cut. Uh, Joe Biden is elected president, but Donald Trump refuses to concede, and the transition to a new administration is, how shall we say, rocky. Uh, Attorney General Bill Barr authorizes federal prosecutors to investigate potential voter fraud and we will take your live questions uh from our audience you guys out there watching at home thanks for joining us let's fire it up right now with uh first topic on the the transition uh peaceful ish ish <clears throat> We are now- Transition-ish. Course, transition-ish. We're transitioning. Transitioning
5: to the transition. Yes.
1: It's sort yeah. of like when the butterfly is like, he's in the cocoon and the wings are pushing out a little bit, I, I guess. We're, we're somewhere in the middle. Uh, usually this would be the point in the transition, of course, where the president would have conceded the election and called the president-elect and wished him well, maybe even had him to the White House for coffee or Diet Cokes or milkshakes or whatever he does when he has people over. Slices
3: uh, of chocolate cake. Delicious cake. cake. Mm-hmm. With with one scoop of ice cream where Trump gets two scoops Mm -hmm. of ice cream. The funny thing
1: is, is Biden knows where they keep the ice cream because it wasn't (laughs) that long ago. So he could just help himself. (laughs) Uh, Trump obviously has not conceded. Very few GOP lawmakers have acknowledged that Biden will be the president elect uh, and foreign leaders are sending in their congratulations. Nevertheless, all kidding aside here, but I want to start with you on this because we are, as we have been at so many points in the past four years, into uncharted territory again. I think that every day that goes by without the president and national leaders acknowledging the election results and committing to a peaceful transfer of power raises the risk that millions of people (coughs) who voted for the president are going to, A, believe that he still will be the president come January 20th and b will be convinced that if and when Joe Biden is inaugurated he will not be the legitimate president please tell me that i am wrong
3: so i think you're not wrong about that perception on their part uh there was a morning consult poll the other day or yesterday That was really shocking. I mean, 70% of Republicans do not believe the election was free and fair. Now, I'll wait and see whether that is borne out by other polls, but it is a very large number. The other side of this coin, though, is that every day that goes by makes the election harder for the president to steal. Right. If you were going to take decisive action to prevent the transfer of power, you would want to move quickly. Georgia, which is, has a recount that was just ordered <coughs> today, a hand recount actually, certifies its vote on November 20th. And so you actually only have nine days to prevent Georgia from certifying its vote. Uh, Pennsylvania and Michigan, I believe, certify on the 23rd and so on the one hand every day that goes by you know that the president doesn't concede entrenches the perception as you describe on his, on the part of his supporters that he didn't really lose but on the other hand every day continues this inexorable march until the time when Biden has in fact a certified result in enough states to prevail. And so I think it's a it's a weird combination of exactly what you describe and also that you know the president is just living in this fantasy land where somehow some through some combination of you know petulant whining on his part and magic the result will be something other than what the result plainly is and you know that's not going to happen there are certain processes that take place that uh, actually do lead to an endpoint
1: so i just want to dwell on this for a second and you are you are not it sounds to me like many sane people like you who i talk to starting to freak out and feel like not only is this eroding confidence in the legitimacy of the election but is somehow i mean we'll get to this later in the in the podcast but part of some you know sinister plan to create the space for the election result to be changed.
3: So I thought the best articulation of this concern was from Bill Kristol at the Bulwark. I thought his piece was very well well put, you know, which is hey, I may be being alarmist, but alarmism in defense of democracy is no vice and complacency in defense of democracy is no virtue. And I think there was, you know, that riffing on the old Barry Goldwater line. I think there's a lot to that. He's, he basically says, what percent certain are you that things are going to be okay? And how how certain is certain enough? And his answer is, I'm not certain enough, given the stakes, not to be alarmed. And I can't tell anybody, don't be alarmed. I can say, I don't see a mechanism. And I actually just posted something a few minutes ago on Lawfare on this. I, I can't see a mechanism by which Trump gets this done. And... By the way, that's if you had a super strategist, Jim James Baker type character that Jared's been looking for running the show for you. I still don't understand how you get it done. I really don't understand how you get it done with a bunch of incompetent nincompoops of the sort that they've actually got running things. And so, yeah, could anything happen? Sure but someone's got to explain to me how it happens before I'm ready to panic about it. Okay.
1: Tammy, I want to go to you next. Let's talk about in the midst of this transition, we are also seeing some major personnel changes in the administration. Some of them had been expected, such as Trump firing uh, Secretary of Defense Esper this week, but also some surprises. He has installed a number of loyalists in key positions at the Pentagon and other places, some names that are going to be familiar to listeners of the podcast as well. This seems like a really strange time to be making big personnel changes, considering that Trump has only 70 or so days left in office. And as I think Ben laid out, it is, I think, a virtual, you know, basically a certainty that there's going to be a new administration. So (laughs) what do you make of these maneuvers here in the final days of the administration?
2: Yeah. um, Look, Shane, before I before I answer that direct question, I do want to add one thing um, in terms of should we or should we not freak out? To me, the the question of whether Trump can engineer some extra systemic overturning of the election result is not in and of itself the primary reason to freak out. The reason to freak out is that the longer this goes on with the denialism and the delays and these procedural narratives on the part of the denialists, the more people who are on the fringe get dug in on this sort of, you know, we must prevent Trump losing at all costs kind of narrative. There was this guy who was arrested in, I think, New York uh, yesterday after making really extreme threats, uh, Turner Diaries, conspiracy theorists, threats against Schumer and others, and cite the the sort of counterterrorism nonprofit Intelligence Center, pointed out that there's just a a tremendous amount of chatter among these right-wing conspiracy theorists uh, and dead-enders. And the longer there's uncertainty around the election result, the more likely those folks are going to be hyped up and active. So that, to me, is a real danger as this goes on. And I hope that FBI and DHS are way on top of that. As far as the personnel changes at DOD and more broadly at senior levels of the administration, because we don't know what's yet to come, I think there are a couple things. Number one, yes, the Esper firing was widely anticipated. In fact, Esper basically told his contacts last week, I'm going to get fired after the election. And that was, you know, largely because Trump never really forgave him for pulling back after the Lafayette Square disaster in June and saying, you know, we should not do this. There is no emergency and this is not how military forces should be used. And then they had this tussle over the names of military bases that were named after Confederate generals. Um, So maybe that one was (coughs) Coming, I think what's most disturbing is the people who are now in acting roles at very senior levels who do not have the background, who don't have the competency, frankly, and who are so ideological in their fealty to President Trump uh, and to conspiracies around President Trump. If you're talking about someone like Cash Patel, for example, former Nunes staffer helping Nunes push all host of crazy conspiracies about Democrats is now in the the chief of staff role at the Pentagon, the most powerful role in the secretary's office. And so, you know, that to me is what's disturbing. Now, there are two theories that have been put forward about what's going on here. One is that it's just vengeance, right? That these are the, the most loyal of the loyalists and This is their chance to get back at the people that they thought were insufficiently loyal and have put themselves forward. Okay, maybe it's opportunistic. But the other theory, which has been sussed out by David Ignatius in a column in The Post, is that there is a policy argument going on behind the scenes and that folks like Esper or maybe Gina Haspel at CIA have been preventing Trump from doing something he really wants to do. Ignatius's reporting suggests that what he really wants to do is declassify intelligence around the 2016 election. <laughs> like, A remember beast that.
3: Beast that will not die.
2: Right. <laughs> you know, and so this is like his last, you know, shot as he goes out the door. See, I'm, you know, making Obama look bad or something. And Redo the 2016
1: election. election. So, so do you, I'm just curious, do you buy that as a plausible reason why? Because I mean, we're going to talk about NSA in just a second with Susan, but if you wanted to remove the people who have been the impediments to declassifying all this information, I think you would start by removing people like You know, the CIA director, which that may or may not happen. There's been rumors flying about that. Certain people at the DOD. I mean, there are those people in government at high positions who know how to slow roll a process. And with them out of the way, you know, maybe a guy like Kash Patel and some of the others can kind of slide that stuff through. I mean, Mm -hmm. do you buy that explanation that Ignatius is putting out there? I mean, having worked in a bureaucracy, too, and knowing what it takes to get things declassified and made public. Yeah, I
2: mean, it sounds as though there are some strong Pentagon equities involved in the intelligence. Of course, we don't know what this intelligence is, but the implication in Ignatius's column is that disclosing it might put American troops in harm's way in some sense or harm Pentagon capabilities that, you know, so maybe. But I could also think of a host of other things that they might want to do, you know, pull troops out of Syria, which Trump has tried to do twice right? And been held back from twice. Uh, Maybe he wants to be able to go out and say, I brought our boys home by Christmas because he said he was going to do that. Um, So I don't put it past possibility that there are things coming down the pike that these firings were designed to pave the way for. It may be what Ignatius says it is. It may be something else. It may be both. Um, What I really worry about, though, is what happens if we face a genuine crisis? Let's say there's another missile attack on American forces in Iraq tomorrow, you know, and you have Anthony Tata in charge of the response, this wacko Islamophobe. You know, that's what scares me about the transition
1: period. I was going to make a joke about my favorite Beach Boys song, Bomb Bomb Iran. Um, We're going to see what happens.
2: That was John McCain's favorite Beach Boys song.
1: (laughs) Well, I like it too. Uh, Susan, I want to talk with you specifically about another important personnel change at your old agency. Trump has installed... A guy named Michael Ellis. Who Not just think... her
3: old agency, her office at the her... agency. Well, there oh. you go.
1: Michael Ellis could have been your boss, Susan, and see, and you traded it for this. Uh, <laughs> he is now the general counsel at NSA. Briefly, as we round out this segment, tell us about him and what you think this presages about Trump's behavior in the transition.
5: Yeah, so this is actually more alarming to me than sort of the personnel shifts we've seen at the Pentagon because of uh, what it might presage about sort of the Trump plan. Um, So Michael Ellis is currently a political appointee, um, and the NSA General Counsel position is a career position. So it's hired by the DOD General Counsel, and unlike the CIA General Counsel, the ODNI General Counsel, the Pentagon General Counsel, it's not a senate position. It's a career position. Um, And there's a fight like every single year with the Hill. They constantly are saying, you know, this needs to be a Senate confirmed position. We need to have these guardrails. We need accountability. The executive branch of both of all kinds of administrations push back and say, no, that will politicize a role that needs to be a political by elevating it into this political service. The the details are still emerging. um, But what this looks an awful lot like is an attempt to convert a political appointee into a career position. Um, So this is a phrase which is, I think, quite a adorably, um, a phenomenon adorably known as burrowing. Um, And you are not allowed to burrow. And burrow is when you attempt to take these political appointees and you put them into career billets with the the intention of basically them not leaving afterwards. There's lots of reasons why it happens. Sometimes it's sort of a deep state-esque attempt to sort of have ideological carryovers. Other times it's that a lot of people of these people aren't going to have jobs at the end of the administration and they want a nice soft landing, um, you know, in, in sort of this protected government position. Um, so the appointment of Ellis both looks like one, an attempt to politicize this really important, um, you know, a political office in a way that circumvents Senate confirmation. So we have all of the negative parts of not having the accountability and guardrails of Senate confirmation and also the overt politicization of putting this kind of person in the role. There's also sort of reasons to believe that there was the advantage of not having Senate confirmation is you have this SES process, the senior executive service, which is this very, very rigidly controlled merit-based process that involves selection boards, certifications after the fact, uh, periods of review, probationary periods in order to prevent political influence uh, and making those decisions. Now, a political, somebody can can convert, um, but we want to make sure that that's not the reason why, right? There wasn't favoritism. It doesn't count against them. So uh, there's lots of evidence of sort of irregularity. So um, at the risk of being, um, I don't know, a little bit mean, but blunt, um, any selection board process that goes in and has Tisha Anthony, the current acting general counsel of NSA, um, someone who's been there for more than 20 years, possesses more legacy knowledge and institutional memory than anybody else in the building, an extraordinary lawyer who has the confidence of the office and and an excellent and strong relationship with the director. Brad Booker, who currently works at ODNI, a really, really well-known, well-respected uh, national security attorney, career person, someone who's uh, who brings a lot of outside perspective. So a lot of times um, there's sort of a desire to not hire within the building in NSA because you want that leadership change to happen. Um, so Brad, an extraordinary option. I don't, um, uh, sort of, I, I don't envy the selection board that had to decide between those two candidates. Um, the thing that is not like the others is Michael Ellis who, I'm sorry, lacks the qualifications, the credentials, the relationship, the managerial experience, right? I mean, Raj Day, who came in, people thought he was too young. He was like 13 years out of law school and was on the 9-11 commission. And people were worried and was a law firm partner. So the idea that the selection board produced Ellis's name is one indication something's wrong. Two, the Washington Post has reported that there was some sort of White House pressure here. Now, your colleague Ellen Nakashima didn't describe the nature of it. There's not supposed to be any White House political pressure, right? This is supposed to be an apolitical process. Uh, there's also really big questions about did Ellis, in fact, go through the OPM process, the Barrett's Review Board process, uh, the quali- Qualifications Review Board that's required to join the FDS. all these things. There are sort of provisions that allow DOD to circumvent those, sort of 50 billets for, for the Secretary of Defense. So like. What happened here? Um, you know, Did they sort of adhere to the ordinary process? There's kind of signs of irregularity everywhere, including just the timing of it. There's no urgency here. There's no reason to do this right now. Um, and I think it's a really important moment for the Biden transition. Um, Because this is likely presaging lots of uh, sort of similar efforts to come, um, possibly in less high profile uh, positions, but sort of this this effort to sort of burrow and convert. And so what the Biden uh, ultimately administration, but right now transition needs to do, I think, is set out a marker because they have to balance these two norms. On one hand, they wanna depoliticize the intelligence community. You cannot have political actors in these roles. On the other hand, one way they're gonna do that is by really rigorously adhering to these civil service rules and civil service protections. And so they need to come out and explain why this is improper um, and to be careful and not get ahead of the facts um, in a way that's gonna allow the DOD general counsel to come in on day one and have the confidence and credibility to investigate the circumstances. And if it looks as though there was a violation of the civil service rules to remedy that, there's lots of uh, of sort of um, very specific federal regulatory uh, uh, rules that that come into play. But this is gonna be a challenge. The Biden transition is gonna meet again and again and again over the next sort of 70 days. And and how they think about this first one, I I think is really important. Um, I'll end with just a little bit of sort of a note of um, of comfort here. Um, I've seen a lot of people being worried about one, but the and this is sort of part of the declassification effort that Tammy was referring to. I've also sort of seen people speculate maybe it's like an effort to improperly surveil new categories of people. That's not really the nature of the NSA General Counsel's office. I'm um, sort of the way the operational imperatives come in, the way authorities are delegated from the director. There's not that much somebody could do in sort of 70, 90-ish days if the NSA director, who, by the way, did not uh, reportedly objects to this hire, unheard of that that would happen. Um, there's not much you can do, and so I'm not like losing sleep at night that something bad's going to happen in the next three months. Um, but it's like this very delicate and really, really important thing for Congress and for the Biden transition to get right.
1: Hey, Tammy, last brief point to you.
5: Yeah, I, I guess the
2: brief point is that there might not be anything specific driving these moves. It may just, I mean, let's go back to the very beginning of the Trump administration and Steve Bannon's talk about destroying the deep state. This may just be part of a broader effort to push out of of roles, people with expertise, people with institutional memory, people with history, people with real skills, to literally just denude the federal bureaucracy of what it needs to function effectively. You know, that is some Republicans like wet dream is just to have a government that just can't do very much. And then everybody will get used to that and government will shrink. And, you know, that's, I think, the executive order that created Schedule F. I mean, we don't know. And I don't know if it's possible in this particular case. But you know, maybe this position got converted to Schedule F and we just haven't seen the paperwork yet. So my real question is, how many, how much expertise is going to be lost by the federal government between now and January 20th? And, you know, what price are we going to pay for that?
4: All
1: right. I've seen a lot of crazy things in the past week. What I have not seen is a credible allegation of voter fraud. But Attorney General Bill Barr has nevertheless decided, and I am not the Attorney General, we all know, <laughs> that this is something worth
5: investigating. Not, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a like campaign there, platform I can get behind. you figured it all
1: out. Now this has all been an elaborate setup. Exactly. Yep. Bill Barr is out there in the 98 listening right now. Uh, <clears throat> the Attorney General has issued a memo on this subject, uh, authorizing federal prosecutor, Susan, to go out and investigate allegations of voter fraud. And I think he said tabulation irregularities. Now, this memo is heavily caveated, and some people are reading that as Barr's way of placating the president as he comes to terms on his own schedule with his election defeat. Do you think that's what's happening here? And this is kind of just a last you know, effort by Barr, who has done things, I think, Perhaps to, to make the president happy before, or do you see something more sinister afoot in what he's authorized?
5: Yeah, so um, I, I'm in the sinister camp. So um, first, let's sort of present, <laughs> oh, <good>. um <laughs> Um, So so first, let's sort of present, like, if we wanted to bend over backwards and really extend Bill Barr, uh, you know, the benefit of the doubt here, um, we would say, well, um, maybe this is an effort to, now that there are all these concerns um, that the president has created and that the Republican establishment has created about voter fraud, um, and so this is a way for Bill Barr to sort of say, hey, look, we have a process, we're not ignoring it, we're looking into it, and then this is the process that's going to... To say there was no voter fraud and then everybody can have been sort of confidence and integrity and we can move forward from there. That's sort of the exceedingly generous read of it. Um, and, and a read, frankly, that I've been more inclined to give to statements to sort of Marco Rubio and others who I think are trying to sort of edge toward that position, but they're just too cowardly to sort of get close enough. Um, The other sort of more nefarious explanation, and and I think more plausible one at this point, um, is that what this really is, is an effort for Bill Barr to produce a document um, that is facially defensible, that is actually technically accurate, right? Which is, well, we're just looking into it and we don't know what's happening. And, you know, maybe there's nothing there, but we're just investigating. But the actual purpose of it is to provide oxygen, right? To, To make it so that Donald Trump is no longer out on his own saying, oh, you know, voter fraud, six ways to Sunday, and everyone else is kind of looking in the other direction. But instead, to create the perception that there's some kind of live question here, so that all these people that are reading the president's statements and saying, oh, there's voter fraud. Um, now we're saying, and look, even the Department of Justice, even the Attorney General is investigating. Therefore, there must be some there there. I really do think it is part of um, that that's the most plausible motivation. One, we saw the resignation of uh, the career official in charge of Overseeing uh, sort of election fraud investigations, so um he didn't quit the department; he just left that particular role. Um, but you know that's a pretty significant form of. Protest. Um, the other thing is, I do think we're seeing Republicans sort of um, solidify around this position. Um, you know that this is sort of a form of turnabout being fair play. That the Democrats accused Trump of, of colluding with the Russians, and and that delegitimized his presidency. And so these claims of voter fraud are a way to uh, you know frivolous, specious, ridiculous claims of voter fraud are a way to um, you know delegitimize uh, President Biden. And they know that whenever Biden takes office, he'll be in a weaker position. It'll be more difficult for him to sort of uh, have this unity message that looks like a strong rebuke of Donald Trump. I think it's especially important that um, they erode the the sort of approval ratings of Biden before January 5th, when there's going to be a Senate election that decides majority of control of the Senate in Georgia, sort of firing up the base. And so I, I think there's every reason to believe that this is completely and totally cynical, Um, And it's disgusting. These are people who are allowing sort of they're watching Donald Trump attempt to burn down confidence in American democracy. We spent the last four years talking about how incredibly dangerous it was for Russia to do this half assed approach of like using social media trolls, you know, and, and like bad photoshops to attempt to erode confidence in our election. Now the president of the United States is doing it aided and abetted by the attorney general. Like people, this is like, this is really fucking bad. And so look, like I'm with Ben on like, you know, there's no real way to change the outcome of the election. And then I am like, I'm convinced by that. And and I'm also convinced by the idea that there's some obligation to, uh, you know, tamp down on some of the anxiety and allow cooler heads to prevail. Um, But at the same time, I'm sort of torn by this, like, what a cynical move, like how what is wrong with you people? And, and I think I can um, I can guess the story that Bill Barr tells himself in his head about why this is okay. Um, it's part of a trend we've seen of like uh, you know he engages in illegitimate behavior because he sees that the other side does it, and that's the only fair thing. But dude, just disgusting, unpatriotic immoral behavior and like we got to deal with a transition we have to deal with a pandemic and a national security crisis and emergency but like let's save this for a later day so we can talk about how much the people who are doing this suck starting with Bill Barr
3: but what do you really think Susan? <laughs> <laughs> the All baby right. started,
5: stopped yelling in the background yeah, like, habeas,
3: <laughs> habeas relief denied, um, <laughs> denied. So I actually, this may surprise people, but I actually completely agree with everything Susan just said. I I was one of the people who, as Twitter keeps reminding me on an almost hourly basis, I was willing to give Bill Barr the benefit of the doubt at the beginning of his tenure for about six weeks. I, I can't imagine why anybody would give him the benefit of the doubt on this. And let me just tick through a couple of factors. Number one, this is an affirmative change in policy. There is a 40 year policy that the Justice Department does not investigate voter fraud allegations pre certification. This is a long standing DOJ policy that Bill Barr changed. For what reason? Exactly. What about the current circumstances justifies a change in that long-standing policy? Secondly, it was done, as Susan brightly points out, over the objection of the career people who run the office, to the point that the head of the office quit his job over it, right? And third, all of this is done in the face of zero, and I mean zero credible evidence of voting irregularities. And so when somebody changes the rules midstream, overriding the strongly held views of career officials for no apparent reason in the face of no predicate that would seem to justify it in a fashion that happens to dovetail perfectly with the assumed preferences of the president, and his immediate electoral interests, which is to say to gin up some sense of suspicion about the integrity of the vote, you have to ask why. And I think the answer to that is uh, pretty obvious, and it's very unflattering to Bill Barr. Now, the one thing that I will say in his defense of the uh, in this situation is that it may be in practical terms pretty harmless because with the standard that he laid out is, okay, you can investigate this pre-certification if the results in a state may turn on it and if it's not frivolous. And that is, in fact, a null set of cases, as best as I can tell. And so he may, and this is not a defense, he may be trying to give the president an appearance that he's changed something without actually having done anything with consequence. But that also falls into the category of, you know, asshole moves to placate the president by people who should be standing up to him at the risk of their jobs. And that is exactly what some of us did not expect from Bill Barr. I know that lots of people say, oh, Wittes, you were so naive about that. Fine, I was. I, I... I cop to it.
1: It was a um, more innocent time, Ben. It
3: was a more innocent time. It was a time when when we assumed that people who had been attorney general before <laughs> had some sense of what the job entailed or at least should entail. So, uh yeah, I actually have no argument with anything that Susan said.
1: Uh Tammy.
2: Yeah, so I I'm trying to think about this not so much through the lens of law and procedure as through like, trying to understand how the White House is thinking about it. Why is it that Donald Trump wants Bill Barr to issue a letter like that, even if, as Ben says, it's a null set of cases and Barr is a smart guy and presumably he knows that? And it gets back to you know, something we've talked about a lot over the course of the last four years on this podcast, which is you know, the relationship between... Laws, norms, and politics, and which expectations people inside a political system or a bureaucratic system, which expectations they, uh, set themselves according to, right? They act relative to. And, and so what he's doing by sending this letter is he's basically, it's an invitation to U.S. attorneys who aspire to a future in Republican politics. And it's saying, okay, guys, here's an opportunity. If you want to curry favor with the Trumpist future of the party, you can gin up a case like this and foul shit up in the states that are under your jurisdiction and demonstrate your loyalty to the president and to his narrative and gain reputation within our little political universe by doing that. Um, That's, I think, at bottom what this is about. Now, it also has the consequence which, you know, we've talked about many, many times of delegitimizing the election in the eyes of a, a lot of Americans, and the longer it goes on, the more that that narrative takes hold. But I actually think that there's a specific political signal that's being sent here, and I will be horrified if anyone decides to take up that mantle and seize that opportunity to screw up some metaphors. But you know, let's remember those people's names.
1: All right. Let's talk to some other people and learn their names. It's time to take some questions from the audience. Ben is going to bring you in. Ben, take it away.
4: Howdy. So um, sometime back, uh, Jake Corman uh, commented that under no circumstances were they going to take direction from the campaign and that they were going to follow the results of the election. But it's been reported that in the last few days, under intense political pressure, he's starting to waver on that and saying, well, that certainly would be the case under normal circumstances. It it sounds like he might be pushable into exploring the option of having a PA state legislative override of, of the process, particularly if the clock can be run out and they can't do whatever... Investigations that they claim they want to do, uh how concerned should we be about the possibility of of that I guess I'm primarily thinking in terms of of ben's framing in in the sense of will this change the concrete results rather than the other framings of what does this do to us as a body politic? but if somebody wants to run in a different direction, that's fine by me
1: yeah that's and that is a terrifying question. I don't know who wants to take it. I'll just only I- note that even if Pennsylvania refused to seat for some unimaginable, well, maybe imaginable reason, Joe Biden would still be the president because he won Arizona and Nevada. But go ahead, Ben.
3: So I can take that question because I actually just did some research <laughs> on the Pennsylvania legislative landscape as part of this piece that I just posted. And I actually think the uh, reporting on uh, Carmen's statement is a little bit unfair to him. Not entirely unfair to him, but he – um issued a very clear statement earlier saying he was not going to, that they would never contemplate overriding the electoral outcome dictated by the people. And he then on Friday was asked about it in the specific context of this election. And he didn't want to address the specifics, but sort of restated his uh, general view As a general matter, uh, which is where that normal circumstances comes from, I don't think he has said anything that actually gives people reason to think the Pennsylvania Senate is likely to pursue this. And I'm not, at this point, all that concerned about Pennsylvania legislatively. A group of members of the Pennsylvania House, I think, demanded an audit of the vote yesterday but that doesn't seem to be getting any traction. And in any event, the Secretary of State of Pennsylvania is a Democrat, as is the governor. So I think the likelihood that anything is going to happen in that regard is is very, very slim. Hi, good evening or afternoon. My question is is about the one of the enduring mysteries of the Trump administration, the attacks on uh, U.S. personnel overseas. Either from some sort of microwave or uh, sonic uh, weapon, potentially from Russia, but this has been sort of slow walked and uh, denied. Especially concerned about the sort of cavalier attitude of of uh, Director of Central Intelligence and uh, Haspel and her sort of dismissal of injuries from some of her most senior officers, including uh, Mark Um So I'm wondering whether you think that we'll see more transparency and. Forthcoming uh, results from the Biden administration on this investigation, especially uh, if the Trump administration has been protecting uh, Putin and Russia?
1: Uh, Just briefly to your question, the answer is yes. I think you will see more transparency from that in a future administration. Uh, and I think that you'll see more, perhaps, former directors of the agency. Speaking up in support of that transparency, uh, regardless of who becomes the director, it's 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 it's, it is one of these moments where this very strange story, uh, you know, receives sufficient public attention at at just the right moment. And I think it's actually from my reporting, uh, you know, moved a lot of people behind the scenes to decide to do something uh, about this. And so I I do think you'll see action on it. Uh, Susan, you want to chime in, too?
5: Yeah, so I, I don't disagree with that, but I do think that there are places, you know, the sorts that has signs of um, agencies defending their own institutional equities. Um, and those are things that tend to endure a Across sort of administrations. And so, um, you know, a lot of people expected like huge changes at the CIA, uh, you know, sort of post George W. Bush and into, uh, you know, the Obama administration. I I do think that we'll see um, probably more transparency and certainly there will be um, a strong desire to be viewed as taking care of and keeping faith with people who may have been harmed. Um, But I don't know that we're going to see sort of a new CIA director come in and say, you know, we're opening the curtain and here's everything that happened and it was all wrong because the, sort of the, the tensions that we're seeing between um, sort of career leadership personnel and, uh, and CIA rank and file, um, those are the kinds of institutional tensions that exist at all agencies and tend not to be part of, uh, sort of solely driven by politics. And so I I think it's a super interesting question, um, but I would uh, maybe adjust expectations because even if the CIA director changes, like the people involved in those types of policy decisions are going to stay the same.
0: Hi, uh, is this question the aliens one or the other one? (laughs) I
3: think we got to go with the aliens question. Okay.
0: This is something that's been bugging me for a while. Uh, There is a group of patents that are referred to as UFO patents by someone who is in the employ of the U.S. Navy and has a number of things that seem crazy. They involve a room temperature superconductor, a miniature fusion reactor relying on that, a gravitational wave generator... And a craft that uses inertial mass dampening. I am a programmer. I don't understand the electronic, like the electrical engineering behind this. But the U.S. Navy has vouched for this in the patent office. After the patent office refused these patents because they seemed outlandish, I think the exact wording of the it was the U.S. Navy CTO and the inventor is Salvatore Pais, P.A.I.S. The U.S. Navy CTO has said that these are being used in some capacity and that other nations are working on these. I have no idea if these are real or misinformation or super theoretical things that they just had an idea for. Do y'all know of this or have any opinions on this this is Bailey's this is Bailey's for Shane. Because- yeah, it's only yeah. for
3: Shane. Shane I,
1: I think we need to talk offline because I need we need another show about this.
5: <laughs> um, I, I you just know.
2: made Shane's weak.
1: You, you need to tweet week. me. We need to follow up. We're gonna follow not, up.
5: Not to argue uh, with the premise of the question, Shane. But the US government is not able to obtain patents.
1: Well, I mean, that you know of. Okay. Uh <laughs> oh you and your damn law. I just um it's
5: one that opinion.
1: <laughs> that is fascinating. Now I will say I thought where you were gonna go with this question was, you know, how like didn't like somebody once like claim they had the patent for podcasts, right? Yes. And like, you know, and this is what, you know, friend of the po- friend of lawfare who shall not be named worked for, you know, <laughs> said patent troll going after these kind of things. I don't know if that's what this is about. That is a fascinating question. I'm glad you brought that up.
3: So um, given the outbreak of COVID-19, both internationally, but certainly domestically, what do you see as being the impact, or are there any impacts on either national or international security policy that
2: folks should be thinking about?
1: Great question. I think to, to the point of the question, too, I would expect we would see more attention paid to the international dimensions of it, but Tammy, take it away.
2: Yeah, so I I think that um, we're already seeing, we already saw it play out in the campaign, the way Biden was able to use the COVID crisis and Trump's basically isolationist response to it, blaming China, pulling the United States out of the World Health Organization, and thereby cutting us off from information and therapeutic uh, efforts that were being done multilaterally. I think, you know, the Biden campaign tried to use that to their advantage. And as a way of demonstrating uh how important it is to return to a more traditional democratic party uh orientation towards these types of issues which is yes we like multilateral cooperation and multilateral institutions um you know that we're going to rejoin the who we're going to rejoin the paris accord we're going to rejoin this jcpoa right so it's part of a broader narrative that i think uh the biden administration is very happy You know, to be able to build on. What does it mean in practical terms, though, once we get past this crisis? That I think is a more interesting question because, yes, we've had our own kind of isolationist sentiments here, but in a lot of other countries as well, this crisis and other things, um, you know, food prices, energy prices, um, have led to questions about the value of the degree of global integration. That has developed over the last couple of decades. And so there's a lot of talk now about what's called delinking, um, you know, uh, preserving more domestic food production capability, um, domestic medical production capability, not buying all our plastic stuff from China, figuring out ways to get access to the rare earth minerals that we use in our cell phones, right? All of these questions I think are gonna compel uh, not just the US government, but other governments to be a little more selfish in the way that they approach multilateral cooperation and to be a little more careful about integrating our economy with other economies. And so we may see a trend away from globalization in certain areas.
4: Okay. So I read a book by Michael
2: Lewis called the fifth risk, and it was about the change, the Passover of the baton from Obama to the uh, Trump administration, which didn't happen very well because they were not receptive. But the hope for me, be optimistic, is that still within the agencies are those people who did that kind of preparation four years ago. You know if they disappeared
5: or they're still there. Yes, I think we're probably going to give the same answer, which is, you know, I think Betty would say it's a a complicated and mixed question. Um, So we have seen, um, you know, sort of the extent to which the civil service has been denuded over the past four years and a lot of legacy knowledge is gone, um, including individuals who um, have been, have participated in functional transitions. So you might have people who have been there now, um, you know, even for, you know, seven or eight years, um, but because they've never had uh, the experience of witnessing what a functional transition looks like, it's really difficult for them to participate in that. Um, You know, that said, there there is institutional knowledge, there are still, you know, good career civil servants um, who are certainly getting ready for this moment. The real risk is how long Trump shenanigans are are going to be able to sort of Push, and, uh, push that sort of moment of, of ascertainment and um, an acknowledgement that the tr- uh, transition has begun uh, in a way that these sort of individuals can actually begin to participate in it. Um, and that's a, a really important for national security purposes because the delayed transition, um, while sort of this is a controversial assertion, um, the 9-11 Commission did feel very strongly that the delayed transition was um, one of the substantial risk factors leading to 9-11. And so um, it's a moment that the national security community cares a lot about, lots of binders, lots of planning. Um, But at the end of the day, there is no substitute for somebody who has done it before and knows what they're doing.
4: Hey, guys. uh,
0: First time uh, caller, long time listener. Um, What do you guys think about the likelihood of Trump or The very likelihood that Trump will use the pardon power in the last days of his administration to pardon himself and his associates. And what impact will that have in the
4: future?
3: What do you think, Shane, is the likelihood high, highest or certain? <laughs> yeah, yeah. How high can we go? It's like a, so it's like Starbucks sizing. The, it's just like yeah. that.
1: Yeah, it's like that scene in Zero Dark Thirty where they come to Jessica Chastain when they're like, "Should we invade Bin Laden's compound?" And she's like, one hundred percent." They're all like, Ooh. "Yeah." This it's one like of, yeah. I think,
3: I think the only serious question here: Manafort is getting clemency? Michael Flynn? He's getting clemency. George Papadopoulos, much of, like you can watch Susan's eyes roll as mm. I say this. He's getting clemency.
1: Really? Um, Even Papadopoulos? Really? The oh,
3: coffee person? He He's been tweeting Because like,
1: it'll piss people
3: like you off.
1: He can have a a happy life. I don't care. I'm
3: just telling you, he's getting a pardon. Um,
1: (laughs) The Papadopoulos um, pardon? The Papadopoulos
3: pardon. (laughs) Um,
1: (laughs) I can barely spell Papadopoulos. You know how long it took me to figure out? Oh, man. I still can't. Papadopoulos
3: and Lieutenant. I just give up. Oh,
1: God. Lieutenant Um, Papadopoulos. Oh, God, he's not.
3: The real question is whether he will preemptively pardon members of his family <clears throat> and whether he will pardon himself. I think the the Yeah, I think the, the like the easy question is will he pardon, you know, all the people who are part of the witch hunt? Uh the hard the harder question is how close to home will it get? What 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 yeah. do you guys
5: think? I mean, look, I, I totally agree with all of that, and um, that we're going to see like a pardon palooza at the end here. Um, for me, though, the interesting question is not like all those other people that I think are sort of foregone conclusions, um, but it's, it's not just the pardoning of the family. It's that, you know, pardons can be broad, but they do have to have some degree of particularity, right? You, you have to pardon something. Um, and so I'm less interested in like sort of what like things that happened before the presidency or things in the Mueller report, stuff like that. I have a like a spidey sense that maybe some other bad and possibly illegal things might have occurred during the Trump administration that we don't know about. Um, And so the question is, and sort of the challenge is like, how much are they going to be willing to tell on themselves and how much can they use a pardon to like actually reduce their uh, sort of legal uh, exposure without like just straight up admitting what they did, it, like how they're going to thread that needle. That I think that's like the, that's the question in my mind. It, it's sort of it's the nature of the pardons, not the fact that they're going to that there's going to be a pardon.
1: I wonder though, could he just say, you know, <clears throat> the radical left and the deep state, et cetera, accuse me of doing the following things, which I did not do, but so that they can't wrongfully lock me up, I'm going to pardon myself.
5: Yes. Yeah, but then he'd still have to list it, right? So unless it's like I pardon, sure. I hereby I pardon, pardon myself for all the following lies, crime that might have existed. No, that, I mean, lo-
3: look at the crime. Look at the the Nixon pardon. It's it doesn't articulate any crimes it just says for any crimes he may have committed you can do it with
2: a with a sweeping gonna be like a a massive snowstorm of pardon papers that all say something that big
1: and there will be secret pardons he pardons himself from being your favorite president (laughs) Hmm. thanks for nothing bye america (laughs) Um, All right, let's go to object lessons. Tammy, why don't you go first?
2: Ooh! Oh, I'm so excited. What's this, guys? Look.
1: It's a binder.
2: What is it? It's a binder. Look.
1: With a woman.
2: What does it say? It says women make our national security stronger. This is a binder. It is full. Whoops, it's upside down. It is full (laughs) of women. (laughs)
5: Binders of women. Yes.
1: Oh, remember um, that? Simpler times, y'all.
3: Yeah. Remember, yeah. remember when saying binders full of women was considered controversial for a presidential <laughs> candidate?
2: Yeah. Boy, those were the days. Okay. But I, I am psyched about this particular binder full of women. Why? Because it is a binder of women uh, that was produced by an organization that I helped to found uh, about a year ago called the Leadership Council for Women in National Security. We got the president, the presidential candidates. We asked them to sign a pledge that if they were elected, they would seek gender parity in their national security appointments. And Joe Biden signed that pledge. And now he is our president elect. We produced a database of over 800 women qualified for Senate confirmable jobs in national security Fully one-third of them were women of color, and we provided that database to the Biden transition team. And yesterday, the Biden transition team announced its agency landing teams, or they're calling them agency review teams. These are the teams that for each part of the executive branch go, once they're allowed to by GSA, go out and talk to the agencies, work on redesign, figure out if special envoys should still be special envoys, things like that. 59% 59% of the landing team personnel are women and a large number of women of color as well. So I am really excited to see what comes next in the Biden transition, but I can tell you that we at LC Wins will be watching closely and holding them accountable for their promise.
1: Uh, I'll go next because I don't have a binder, but I do have a book and it's not full of women, but it is full <laughs> of badges. And I'm going to show this to the audience at home. This is a book called... I could tell you, but then you would have to be destroyed by me, (laughs) which is it's by uh, an author and artist actually named Trevor Paglin. I've had this book for a while. This was a Christmas present from Joe, uh, I think a couple of years ago, but I am uh, for another project. I am recently digging back into it. What he's done is he's taken all of the patches from ostensibly black budget clandestine programs, a lot of them having to do with aircraft testing uh, at Area 51. And he's found all of the patches that are created for this that basically advertise, you know, what the super secret thing is that you're working on. They don't entirely give it away, but there's like a lot of sort of like, there's this symbolic vocabulary that you can use to decode them. Like a lightning bolt on a patch usually means electronic warfare. Or a patch with six stars is usually referring to Area 51 because 5 plus 1, like where they're testing aircraft and all that. And it's just great because it's this little window into a secret world that is literally not so secret because you're wearing it on a uniform. Super book, really, really fun. Yes, of course, aliens, obviously. Um, But check it out. I could tell you, but then you would have to be destroyed by me, Trevor Paglin. And you too can figure out the meanings of Red hats with less. I'm not going to tell you what it means. All right, Ben. Last week, for
3: the first time since lockdown, I went back to the Brookings Institution. And there were many things there that it was gratifying to see. One of them was not all the dead plants in the jungle studio. Not one of which even has a single live leaf. Which oh, uh, is very sad. It's a horrible um, way to go. Yeah, the, the the jungle studio is going to. It's <laughs> going to be like it looked like. I imagine the Amazon after these forests. We're just. It's going to have to be. We're just going to have to do the whole thing over and start again on the plants. But uh, I got to see the masks, and I got to see. I got to retrieve the all important baby cannon wax stamp, and I retrieved this guy, the Bob Mueller puppet. (laughs) The Bob Mueller puppet, as Susan will patiently allow me to say, was ordered by me during a ill-fated effort to uh, do a video of the Bob Mueller puppet reciting the words of key Bob Mueller indictments in the voices of famous people. And we got John Legend to do some voice of the Bob Mueller puppet. And we got Tomas Ilvis, the former president of Estonia. We got a whole bunch. Rachel Maddow did some voice of Bob Mueller. We got a whole bunch of people to do it. And then for reasons I won't go into, we decided the better part of Valor was probably not to... um, You're not going to go into the reason? Well, let's just say there were some people at our host institutions who didn't think it was a good idea. So um I can't imagine. What <laughs> so the Bob Mueller puppet um became a, an orphan and the uh speaking indictments project became audio only. You can find it on the lawfare podcast feed. It's very funny. I think it does not have Bob Mueller puppet giving a press conference, telling this story. But the Bob Mueller puppet became, I think, kind of the, would you say like a, a mascot of the lawfare office for a while
5: after that, Susan? It did. Um,
0: <laughs> Over Susan's objections.
5: Here's what I will say I'm, I, I admire your restraint, Ben. Um, anyone who sees me in person um, and would like me to tell you what was objectionable about the Bob Mueller puppet, I will whisper it into your ear.
3: <laughs> oh, you, mean that, that is the you mean that the nose looked like a penis? Oh, God. <laughs> Do, people Which, really. Fair valid i mean valid it did i i i It still does it still does <laughs> i just want to say the bob Mueller puppet remains dear to my heart i was delighted to rescue him from brookings and he now lives in the virtual jungle studio with a lot of virtual plants
1: i just have to say that at the time that you guys did this i remember thinking like oh this is so much fun and now I like back. And I was like, that's the craziest <laughs> shit I have ever heard. <laughs> like, what? Like John Allen calling, being like, can we get John Legend to maybe come to Brookings instead of having you do him with a puppet?
3: I just want to say about John Legend, when I called him and said, <sighs> hey, uh, would you record? I just texted him. Would you record this? He was like, sure. And, and he, he is such a pro that he went into his studio you know, a few days later and recorded like each sentence like ten times. And uh yeah, it was great.
1: Could you text him and see if he'll come over and like just play piano at my
3: house? I don't think that's an ask that would like but like if it was like singing a Mueller indictment, he was very oh. serious about oh, okay. the Mueller investigation.
1: Well, have him come over, we're all we'll all wear masks. Um Susan, round us out.
5: All right, so I have two, but they're short. So one is that on Saturday, when uh, Joe Biden was officially declared the president-elect, I was at the National Arboretum um, with my kids, like, you know, just getting outside, um, ha- had my phone with me, but realized what had happened whenever I heard this cheer go up from like a million directions in the forest, immediately like left because I knew that I was going to have to work on some stuff for uh, for lawfare and, uh, you know, sort of other work issues. And so was walking out, um, had not spoken to anybody else. And as I was leaving sort of the, the trail, somebody said, Susan Hennessy." I turned around and it was a rational security listener who I don't know how they recognized me. With a mask on, but hello, national <laughs> security listener. You are the first person I spoke to after learning that Joe Biden was officially the president elect. So, hello. And you guys are, um, it's always a lovely experience. Um, and then, my actual object lesson for today um, is a repeat. Um, and that is what used to be uh, just a, a lovely uh, hypothetical, a hope and a prayer is now real. And that is the after Trump book. Yeah. And this is actually uh, sort of a serious point. One, first of all, look how good it looks like it's for a lot of people. Like, this is some professional shit guys. Um, so I'm <laughs> super impressed uh, of how it actually looks to have it in my hand. Um, the other thing is like, see it's how it's got this? words in it. And this everything. is just like, the tip of the iceberg on <laughs> what we are going to have to sort of the restoration project ahead of us. Um, and I, you know, look, obviously, um, I'm not totally unbiased here, but it really is the the most serious, specific, sort of critical thinking that has been done um, by Jack Goldsmith and Bob Bauer of kind of like, how do we restore the institutions? How do we repair this? And so for people who need a break from um, sort of being afraid of what's going to happen in the next uh, 70 days and want to start thinking about um, the challenges and also the the real possibilities of the next four years, um, I just, I I really, really recommend um, that you pick it up and sort of um, join the public thinking and public conversation about how we're going to find a way back from here.
1: And we're going to do that together on this podcast, which we are so grateful to you all for joining us today, uh, both out there in audio land and in our remote studio audience. Uh, Lawfare (laughs) Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find a template for filling out your own patent for a cold fusion reactor at uh, Lawfare Patent Store. That's correct. Yeah. 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 Dot .intellectualventures.com. dot com.
3: And it and and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ouch. Um,
1: yeah. Just saying.
3: iv.patentroll.com. <laughs> dot <laughs> dot <laughs> com.
1: I hope David's not listening this week (laughs) Sorry (laughs) You can follow us on Facebook Of course you can find us on Twitter At RATL security Whenever you download the podcast Please be sure to leave a rating and review It really helps others find the show Like these 110 people who are joining us here today Mm -hmm. Our audio engineer this week Was Ian Enright from Goat Rodeo The show is produced and edited as always By Jen Patya Howell Uh, Music this week by Joe Biden And his surprisingly Mellow version of David Bowie's "Changes."
3: <laughs> I just want to say, here is Ian, who has been hiding all the, all through oh, the look, episode. It's Ian, hi Ian. No, I did not because <laughs> he, he announced you, so I brought you in.
1: <laughs> we so really Seems like the kind of thing you should bring on a person this day and
3: age. I totally yeah. sprung it on Ian. <laughs> I knew he'd be
1: game for it. Well, at least he wasn't tubing. Oh boy. <laughs> oh. Okay, time to go. Bye, Sophia. <laughs> On behalf of all of my friends, Ben, Witness, Demarco, Witness, and Susan Hennessy. and all you guys out there who joined us, I'm Shane
2: Harris. Not. Thanks
1: for listening. We love you guys. Bye.
5: Not. Bye.
0: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?